But here during our winter break, we're going to take a a break off of our Genesis series and, and go into a few other things. Today, I will be talking about the book of Obadiah. Now, Obadiah is the shortest book in the Hebrew Old Testament. It is only uh, 440 English words in the translation I'm using, and 291 in the original Hebrew, contained in 21 verses. And it's probably a book that you don't know very much about. You know, it's a kind of overlooked book being so small, and maybe not the most glamorous book either. But I believe that every part of Scripture is significant and has value to us. So I want to treat this book with respect, and I want to go through it and teach us some things about it. Now, because this is a book that you've probably not heard a lot about. Uh, We're going to start with a bit of context before we dive right into it. But before we get into that, I'll go ahead and pray for us. Father, we're thankful for this opportunity we have to come together and learn about Your Word. We're thankful for this opportunity we have to just uh, worship You and uh, that we have such a wonderful congregation here today uh, and that we're just uh, glad to have this opportunity just to celebrate the Advent season, the birth of your son Jesus, um, and uh, his life and death and resurrection. We pray this all in your son's name. Amen. Cool. So, let's go ahead and get into some of the context of Obadiah. So, there's a few things that I think you'll need to really get the most out of Obadiah. First is the who. You know, who's involved here in this book? Well, first is the Hebrew prophet Obadiah. You know, Obadiah guy who wrote this book, the guy who is giving this prophecy. And we don't know much about him. We don't really see him anywhere else. He probably was from the nation of Judah, and he was a prophet. Uh, Just a little fun fact, his name means the servant of God. The next person is Edom, which is less of a person and more of a nation, although it's also kind of a person. See, the nation of Edom is comprised of descendants from Esau, who was also known as Edom. Now, the word Edom, or Adom, in the Hebrew means red, and Esau was called red because of his red hair and red complexion. But red is also a pretty apt name for the nation of Edom because they lived in these mountains with very red rocks. Now, the next group or person is Israel. Now, Israel is the nation comprised of the descendants of Jacob, also known as Israel. And Jacob, or Israel, was the twin brother of Esau, also known as Edom. Uh, They were Abraham's grandsons through his son Isaac, and Jacob wound up tricking Esau, the older of the two twins, out of his inheritance. This created some bad blood. They didn't really get along for a while. Jacob fled, feeling Esau might kill him, Uh, but then they made up near the end of their lives. However, this this makeup between the two brothers didn't really lead to a makeup between the two nations. The two nations, the nations of Edom and Israel, never really got along, and there was a lot of strife between them, and you'll, you'll see that as we get into this book. And finally, our last group here is Judah. Now, Judah, again, is a nation and also a person. Judah is one of the sons of Jacob, or Israel, and was also a, a tribe, and then also a nation. It was the southern nation of Israel after that nation split into two, and they shared a border with Edom, and because of this and the bad relationship between the Israelites and the Edomites, uh, Judah and Edom didn't really get along, and there were more than a few squabbles there. So that's all the who. Now let's talk about the when. So when did this take place? Well, we know the events that lead up to Edom, or at least a bit about them, but there's two potential options. So Edom or sorry, Edom, Obadiah, uh, is written after a devastating attack on the nation of Judah. There's two options here that we have. Uh, The first is this invasion of Jerusalem from 
Philistines and Arabs uh, during the years of 853 to 841 B.C., uh, during the reign of the Judah's king of King Jehoram. Uh, this is detailed in 2 Kings 8 and 2 Chronicles 21. And during this period of time, this coalition of Philistines and Arabs raided the nation of Judah. They took a bunch of people. They killed a bunch of people, took a bunch of uh, treasure, including some of the king's treasure. Um, and it was a really bad time for Judah. The alternative option uh, for when this might, what attack this might have been was something much later. Uh, the Babylonian siege on Jerusalem that lasted from 589 B.C. to 586 B.C., which is detailed in 2 Kings 25 and 2 Chronicles 36. Now, during the siege, uh, which lasted three years, the Babylonians built a wall around the city of Jerusalem, uh, starved them out until they eventually came in, killed a bunch of people, took a bunch of people into exile, and completely destroyed the temple there in Jerusalem. Also, a very devastating attack. Now, it doesn't really matter necessarily which one are the events that Obadiah is referencing here in this book, uh, because it seems that Edom was complicit to a certain degree in both of these attacks, and that's what Obadiah is accusing Edom of, is their complicity in one of these attacks. Either way, we know Edom played a role in both of these, and God, seeing all of time before him, knows the actions that Edom took in the first attack and in the second attack, so this could in a sense, involve both, despite when the book may have been written. Uh, finally, we're going to talk about the where. And uh, so, where did these things that are being discussed in the book take place? Well, here's a map, that, uh, a couple maps actually, that show the region. First map on the left, this is what the region would have looked like uh, during that first potential attack. Uh, so, you can see up there, you've got Judah in green and Edom in that kind of darkish purple down there uh, to the southeast of them. And then the map on the right, this is what it would have looked like during that second potential attack. This is, you can see Edom and Judah, they're mostly the same, but that northern nation of Israel is gone and now different groups of people live up there. Uh, but that's it. I think that covers all of our context, so we can finally dive into this passage and see a bit. Oh, actually, sorry, I have one more picture. Uh, a little more info on Edom. They're a mountain nation. So here's a picture of the mountains. You can see those red mountains. This will come into play later. The mountains are important. And actually, you probably don't know much about Edom, but I guarantee a lot of you have seen a picture from Edom or know at least one thing about Edom, and it's this thing here, uh, the city of Petra. Yes, this is the set for where the Holy Grail is in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Pretty famous. It's a pretty big uh, relic of the ancient nation of Edom. So you know, at least a little bit about them. Now, that's all of our context. Let's dive into the passage here. So, starting in verse 1, first couple of verses here. The vision of Obadiah. This is what the Lord God has said about Edom. We have heard a message from the Lord. An envoy has been sent among the nations. Rise up and let's go to war against her. Look, I will make you insignificant among the nations, and you will be deeply despised. So, Obadiah, he gets straight to the point here. We see that God has called the nations to war against Edom, and He says that Edom will be made insignificant. Now, Edom, it was never a huge power. It was never this massive empire that ruled over things, but they were also never insignificant. They were a fairly significant nation for a long time, having existed at least since the 12th century BC, existing all the way for many centuries after that. But despite this, God says He will make them insignificant. And, and Edom knew they weren't uh, 
insignificant. Edom knew that they had power, and that's why God says this in the next couple of verses. He says, your arrogant heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in your home of the, on the heights, who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? Though you seem to soar like an eagle and make your nest among the stars, even from there I will bring you down. This is the Lord's declaration. So we see here Edom was arrogant, and honestly, for, for good reason. They thought they were unconquerable as a nation because of the natural defense of their mountains, which you can see again right here, a picture of their mountains. The thing about these mountains, not only are they tall mountains where they live, giving them the advantage of possessing the high ground, but these mountains are also full of narrow canyons. In fact, I have a picture of an infamous one right here called the Seek. This is a canyon you'd have to pass through to get to the capital city of Edom. So it was very easy for Edom to defend their cities because you just put a few troops at the mouth of this, this canyon, and you can defend it against a much larger army because they can only get so many people through that pass at a time. And so Edom they saw themselves as unconquerable. They, they had this feeling that, that uh, God describes here in Obadiah of like being an eagle that soars and nests among the stars, being literally and figuratively above the other nations around them. But despite this, God says that He will bring them down, not just physically, but also He's going to humble them too. So they're, they're proud and high up in their arrogance and in their location, but God says He's going to bring them down. And He goes on to describe what that will look like in the next few verses. Here in verses 5 and 6, He says, "'If thieves came to you, if marauders by night, how ravaged you would be! Wouldn't they only steal what they wanted? If grape harvesters came, you, came to you, wouldn't they leave a few grapes?' how Esau will be pillaged, his hidden treasures searched out. So we see here that Edom, they're not just going to be robbed, they're not just going to have some of their treasure taken, they're going to be ravaged. So the judgment of Edom will not be like thieves coming in the night and taking only what they can carry away, or like grape harvesters coming and only taking the good grapes. No, instead everything will be taken from them, even their hidden treasures. Now, Edom was a very wealthy nation, especially considering its size. Again, their geography plays a big role in helping them here. Their mountains uh, allowed them to have a huge supply of fresh water because rain would run down these mountains and then collect in these canyons and form these massive reservoirs of water. And they also had a path through the mountains called the King's Road, which I have a map showing here. The King's Road, that's this red line up there. This is a, a a trading route that connected Egypt and Mesopotamia, two massively important cultural centers that have been important since the beginning of human civilization and still are important today. So there's an incredible amount of trade passing through, you can see that little blue circle there, Edom. And because they have these massive reservoirs of water, people are stopping there, they're trading, and they're paying to stay in Edom, which made Edom a very wealthy and influential nation. But yet, despite this, God says that their wealth will be taken from them. And God gives some insight into how that's going to happen in the next verse where it says this, "'Everyone who has a treaty with you will drive you to the border. Everyone at peace with you will deceive and conquer you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you. He will be unaware of it.'" So, Edom, 
because of the importance of the, the trade route that passed through them, because they had some military might, some uh, valuable uh, geography, they had alliance, alliances with multiple nations. In fact, they were, again, a fairly influential nation that had many connections. Uh, but despite this, they're going to be, the, the, these, the power, the strength of these alliances is actually going to play against them because the allies, their allies are going to turn on them. They're going to hurt Edom and, and destroy Edom. And Edom's not going to see it coming, which turns their alliances from a strength into a weakness. And just, God describes just how bad it will get for Edom when they are betrayed. Here in the next couple of verses, he says, in that day, the day when Edom's attacked, the which is more of an era than a particular day. This is the Lord's declaration. Will I not eliminate the wise ones of Edom and those who understand from the hill country of Esau? Teman, your warriors will be terrified. Quick note here, Teman is a city. It's an important city in Edom. It's named, again, it's another thing where it's a city, but it's also a person. It was named after the eldest grandson of Esau. And it probably had uh, significance in, in a military way, since here Obadiah is referencing soldiers of Edom being terrified, of soldiers of Teman being terrified. So he says this Teman, your warriors will be terrified, so that everyone from the hill country of Esau will be destroyed by slaughter. So here we see that the wise leaders of Edom will be eliminated. Their wisdom will not be enough to save them. These, these people who are leading Edom, who've uh, developed these important, valuable alliances, who've hoarded up great wealth, who have prepared great defenses, and it's not going to be enough to protect them. And their warriors are not only going to be defeated, they will be left terrified. So with their leaders eliminated and their warriors left terrified, it says here that everyone from the hill country of Esau will be slaughtered. So this is the first nine verses of the book, and these verses... Uh, have now summarized what's going to happen to Edom. So let's, let's take a look back and see everything that Obadiah has proclaimed will happen to Edom. So here's the fate of Edom. Here's what's going to happen to them according to Obadiah's first nine verses. So first, they're going to be made insignificant. This is what Obadiah says in verse 2. He says that they will be made insignificant. So despite being an important and well-established nation with many trade deals and a, a valuable place in the ancient world, they're going to be made insignificant as a nation and as a people. Their importance will not be enough to protect them from God's judgment. Next, we see that they will be brought down from their high places. They're going to be brought down into the mountains, brought down to lower ground physically, and then humbled out of their arrogant high thinking of themselves. So their arrogant hearts will be deflated, and they will be brought down out of the mountains. Their arrogance and the protection of their mountains will not be enough to protect them from God's judgment. Next, we see that their wealth will be stolen, talked about in verses 5 and 6. So, Edom's going to be thoroughly ravaged. All their treasures, even their hidden treasures, are going to be sought out and taken from them. Despite being a nation of great wealth, especially considering the small size of Edom, that wealth will not protect them from God's judgment. Next, we see in verse 7 that their allies will betray them. Edom's allies will not help them. In fact, they will betray Edom. Their alliances, these alliances that Edom has cultivated, presumably over centuries, are not enough to protect them from God's judgment. Next, we see that their wise ones will be eliminated. The leaders and wise ones of Edom will be eliminated. They're going to be completely destroyed. Their wisdom, their planning, all this time that they've put in, into making Edom a great nation, making them safe, is not enough to protect them from God's judgment. Next, we see that their warriors will be left terrified. 
So not only will their warriors be defeated, but they will be left terrified. All of their strength in numbers, weapons, armor, and training will not be enough to protect them from God's judgment. They will be slaughtered. That's the last thing that, that Obadiah proclaims. The text here says that everyone will be destroyed by slaughter. Important thing to note here, the culture of the time used hyperbole in cases like this. So when it says that everyone will be slaughtered, this really more uh, realistically is saying that a large portion of the population is going to be killed. Not that every single person in the nation of Edom will be killed, but that a great deal will be. And their numbers are not enough to protect them from God's judgment. So, here I have all these things listed here. Now, they all happen. We, we, we know it as a matter of historical fact that every single thing up here happens. I have a map up here to kind of explain how and, and what it looked like. So, so let's go through these things. Um, first, I want to say this. I, I point all, all this stuff out for a very particular reason. That's that fulfilled prophecy is one of the greatest evidences for the truth of Scripture. So, nobody really argues about Obadiah being written centuries before this stuff happens. Like, no, really no one thinks that Obadiah was written late enough that he was actually pretending to make these predictions, but actually knew about them, which means that we have two options if these predictions come true. One, Obadiah got lucky and made some pretty good guesses. Or two, God's Word is true and God revealed these things to a prophet. I'm going to say it's two. So anyway, let, let's go through them and see. So first, they were defeated by Babylon. This is what starts the beginning of the end for Edom. Babylon, one of their most important allies, which Babylon, by the way, isn't just a… it, it is a giant empire, but it's also comprised of, of smaller nations that make up that empire. So it's likely that Edom had multiple treaties with each of these nations in Babylon, as well as the overarching empire of Babylon themselves. So Babylon, one of the allies, attacked Edom. And, and then, after they were attacked by one of their allies, they were pushed out of their land by different nomadic groups from the south who came up. They started these nomadic groups. They, they started to live amongst the Edomites, broke bread with them, shared some friendship with them. And then, seeing the opportunity when Babylon attacks them, these uh, nomadic groups, these refugees kind of living in Edom, band together and push Edom completely out of the mountains. So, Edom is literally brought down out of the mountains, and Edom, the Edomites, after a great slaughter, after having their leaders killed and their warriors terrified, and their allies betray them, they're literally brought down in the mountains, and they settle in the lower-lying Judean foothills to the north. So, you see uh, in that, that dark purplish nation there called Idumea, that's, that's Edom. They were called Idumea because that's kind of a Greek way of saying Edom. Um, so, this is like when the Greeks and Romans were writing histories, they called this nation Idumea because they were the Edomites. And now that they're pushed out of their mountains, which provided them protection and provided them wealth, they're, they're far less significant, their numbers are far smaller, and they've literally been brought down. So, we see from the evidence that Edom was made insignificant, brought down out of their mountains, had their wealth stolen, was betrayed by their allies, lost their leaders, had their armies defeated, and a great many of them were slaughtered. Every single thing that Obadiah said came true. God's Word is true. So now that we've gone through all of the things that happened to Edom, you might be asking yourself a question. You might be saying, what did Edom possibly do to deserve this harsh of a judgment? Well, Obadiah answers this in the next verse. It says this, 
you will be covered with shame and destroyed forever because of violence done to your brother Jacob. It's because of the violence they did to their, their brother nation, Jacob, specifically uh, the nation of Judah here in Obadiah. So the violence was, was just so repugnant to God that He brings this judgment on them. And it's so repugnant to God for a few reasons. First is violence. We shouldn't be going around killing and taking advantage of people. That's, that's not good. And, and I think I don't need to do much convincing to, to make you believe that. But secondly, Edom had done violence to God's chosen people, Israel. You know, these are the people that God chose to work with, the people who God chose to bring uh, our Messiah Jesus through. And, and He brought, put a special kind of protection around them. Now, this protection was taken away after they sinned against God, and He allowed them to be punished. Um, but still, there were, Edom has attacked God's people, and so God is dealing out judgment for that. And lastly, the biggest reason, kind of the biggest theme of this book about why it's so wrong that Edom did this is that Edom and Israel were related. They were like cousins. God describes them as brothers here. He says that you've done violence to your brother Jacob. I mean, because literally, Edom and Israel are the names of two twin brothers. For crying out loud, they should be supporting and caring for one another like family. But instead, Edom has committed great violence against their brother Jacob. And this is just disgusting, that this, this familial relationship of where these people should be caring for one another has been so totally warped by jealousy, by hatred, by sin, that Edom has done violence against their brother Jacob. And we, we begin to see this violence detailed in the following verses. I'll start with verse 11. It says this, "'On the day you stood aloof, on the day strangers captured his wealth, while foreigners entered his city gate and cast lots for Jerusalem,' You are just like one of them. So here's the first accusation against Edom. They stood aloof. They, they didn't do anything to help Judah when they were attacked. It says here that, that because they, they stood aloof while foreigners entered the city gate, while they cast lots for Jerusalem, while they took advantage and, and, and harmed the people of Israel, that Edom, because of their inaction, was just like one of them. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that Edom had to send in all their troops and come in and save the day and fight off whoever was attacking them. They could have done anything. They could have opened their borders and brought in some refugees. They could have tried to use their significance and their influence to, you know, negotiate a, a, a peace treaty. They could have sent supplies, sent anything. They could have done anything to help these people, but they did nothing. And because of that, God says that they were just like one of them. I think that this is a lesson that we could all stand to take to heart, that when we see evil, that we have the chance to, to stop or to alleviate, and we refuse to do that, we refuse to step in, we become complicit in that evil. It says in James that if a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, stay warm and be well fed, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? We're meant to do good, to help when we can. If there's a need and we can meet it, we should be trying to meet it. But James goes even farther later in the book. He says this, he says, so then it is a sin to know the good and yet not do it. We should be actively doing good in the world and seeking to stop evil or at least alleviate the effects of it. If we don't, it's sin. It's sin to know what's right and not do it. It's sin to see evil and refuse to step in. And God says that when we 
do that, we become complicit in it. We're just like the people who commit it. This is something that, that really should change the way that we live, you know, that we become people passionate and excited about caring and helping others. Let's, let's continue on here and see what else Edom did. Next in verse 12, it says this, it says, do not gloat over your brother in the day of his calamity. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction. Do not boastfully mock in the day of distress. So here we see that Edom, they gloated over Judah and mocked them when they were captured and killed. And we have a, a, actually a, a very, uh, I'd say, graphic picture of Edom doing this in, in Psalm 137. Psalm 137 is the psalm of after uh, the Judeans are pulled out of their country and taken into exile in Babylon. They're abused there. And in Psalm 137, the Babylonians are, are, are needling them and saying, hey, hey, you uh, slaves and captives who we have here, sing a song for us. And the Judeans, are, they're, they're in so much pain and sadness because they've been pulled out of their homeland. They're being abused. They're being treated as slaves. They're like, how can we sing? And they talk about, and they talk about you know, all the horrible things that have been happening, happening to them, and they list this one instance here in verse 7 of where their brothers, Edom, rather than helping them, they mock them. And so Edom, we see Edom says this, "'Remember, Lord, what the Edomites said that day at Jerusalem. Destroy it. Destroy it down to its foundations.'" So here, not only do the Edomites refuse to help, they're off on the sidelines saying, yeah, kill them, destroy them, take it all the way down to the foundations. They're cheering it on. They're getting the kicks out of watching their brothers be murdered, be abused, be taken into exile. This is disgusting. And this is what happens when we give hate a place in our heart and let it grow. Rather than loving and caring for those around us like we should, when we begin to see them as the enemy, begin to see them as the people who stand in our way, we kind of want to see them destroyed. And this, it just grows the longer we feed it. This is how a nation that started out as two twin brothers can go from being brothers to cheering when one of the nations is destroyed. In the darkest hour of this whole nation, they're cheering, encouraging their attackers to destroy them completely. And this is part of why God's judgment is so harsh on Edom, because their hatred has grown so much. We'll continue on and see what else Edom did. Here in verse 13, it says this, Do not enter my people's city's gate in the day of their disaster. Yes, you, do not gloat over their misery in the day of their disaster, and do not appropriate their possessions in the day of their disaster. So we see that Edom, they're not just inactive, standing on the sidelines, cheering for their destruction. Instead, they actually get in there and they steal from Judah. After the attackers come and deal a huge blow to Judah, they come in, they get in Jerusalem, and they take what's left. They steal some stuff from it. Not only do they steal their possessions, but we actually see in Ezekiel that they came and stole land from Judah. It says in Ezekiel this, you it's Edom here is being addressed. You, Edom, said, these two nations and two lands will be mine, saying, so I have Edom, that's one, and then the abandoned land of Judah where people were taken into exile, that's two. So these two nations, these two lands will be mine, and we will possess them. They, this is Judah, are desolate. They have been given to us to devour. So this, these attackers come in, they kill a bunch of people from Judah, 
They take them into exile. And then the Edomites, seeing this incredible opportunity, they come down from their mountains, they steal some possessions from uh, the capital city of Judah, and then they say, hey, look, there's a bit of land here where there used to be some farmers, there used to be some people. It's a nice house here where people, the people were taken and kidnapped and pulled away. It's, it's ours now. It's been given to us. And so they expand and settle more. They take over and they take advantage. And they go even beyond that, we see in the next verse. In verse 14, it says this, Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off their fugitives, and do not hand over their survivors in the day of distress. So Edom has gone well beyond inaction, well beyond words, well beyond even theft. We see here that they were standing at the crossroads as people from the north on the other side, or the east maybe, came and attacked Judah. They stood on the other side, and rather than standing with open arms saying, hey, we'll take care of you, hey, this is the darkest hour of your life, captured them, they kidnapped their brothers, and they gave them over to their enemy. They took them as slaves and sold them. Really gets harder to think of something more callous than that. And this begins to show us why God's judgment of Edom was so harsh, because all these actions, the refusal to help, the gloating, the theft, and the abuse, the direct abuse of Judah's people show the hatred Edom had for Israel. These actions reveal just how wicked and twisted their hearts have become over centuries of jealousy, centuries of hate. And all this evil they committed will be judged by God. This is why they're going to lose their land. This is why they're going to be slaughtered. This is why they will be made insignificant. They lose their land, their wealth, and their heritage. And after laying out Edom's guilt, Obadiah here makes a pivot. So he's, he's lifted up Edom as an example of of evil and of God's judgment on that evil. And he makes a pivot here in the next couple of verses saying this, For the day of the Lord is near against all the nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. What you deserve will return on your own head. As you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and gulp down and be as though they had never been. So Obadiah, he makes a major shift here in verses 15 and 16. We go from focusing on this one particular nation that did this one particular thing to talking about a coming judgment on all the nations. It's this this thing called the day of the Lord is coming against all nations, and everything that we have done is going to be turned back on us. Now, there's a couple items I want to clarify here. First is this phrase, the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord, it appears all over the Bible in many different places, and it's used to describe a day or a a period of time where God's judgment is poured out on a particular group of people, where evil has been done and God is going to set it right. And that usually means very bad things for the people who've done evil, because they are continuing and, and, and contributing to the evil of the world. And so here we see that the day of the Lord is coming for all, all of us, every nation. The second item I want to clarify here is the talk of, of drinking in verse 16. It says, As you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and gulp down and be as though they had never been. So it starts here with what, what, what seems like mundane drinking, like the Edomites broke into Jerusalem, probably found some wine, got drunk on the mountain, and had a good time, celebrated you know, Judah's destruction. 
But then it pivots and it seems to go from, you know, this, this kind of mundane drinking where they're drinking physical liquid to something metaphoric, something figurative here, that all the nations, everyone is going to drink continually, drink and gulp down, and the result is they will be as though they had never been. Now, this language here is very reminiscent of something else that we see in Scripture a few times called the cup of God's wrath. And it seems that God is talking about passing judgment on all the nations, and they will drink down this judgment and be destroyed. Uh, I think there's a great passage here in Jeremiah 25 that I'll read some, some of that I think gives us a great idea of what the cup of God's wrath looks like. So, it says this, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me. This is Jeremiah. Take this cup of the wine of wrath from my hand and make all the nations to whom I am sending you drink from it. They will drink, stagger, and go out of their minds because of the sword I am sending among them. So here, Jeremiah is in a vision, and God gives him a cup. He says, the cup of the wine of my wrath. Now, go and give this cup to every nation to whom I'm sending you. And then God goes on to list, like, every surrounding nation. It's like the Edomites and the Moabites and the Jebusites and the Philistines and all the way getting farther and farther out. And then eventually, it's like, if I missed any, it says this, it says, and so all the kingdoms of the world, every nation is going to drink of this cup. And then it continues on talking about what this is going to do to those nations. In verse 27, it picks up here, it says, then you are to say to them, this is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel says, drink, get drunk and vomit, fall down and never get up again as a result of the sword I am sending among you. If they refuse to accept the cup from your hand and drink, you are to say to them, this is what the Lord of armies says, you must drink, for I am already bringing disaster on the city that bears my name, so how could you possibly go unpunished? You will not go unpunished, for I am summoning a sword against all the inhabitants of the earth. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies." So here we see that every nation is going to face God's judgment. Every nation is going to drink of the cup of God's wrath. In Obadiah, it says this, it says that as you have done, it will be done to you. What you deserve will return on your own head. And this is a really unfortunate thing for us because every nation and every person who has ever existed and will ever exist has done evil. And we deserve to see that evil returned upon us. Edom is an example for us of what the rest of the nations can expect, a judgment and destruction with the evil that we have done, the evil that Edom done came back to them, the evil that we have done will come back to us. So if we or our nation has abused others, taken what is not ours, mocked people in their suffering, or refused to step in and stop evil, then we deserve judgment. And nothing can stand in the way of God's judgment. We see this from, from Edom. They're, they have all of these things. They have all these things that should protect them, but they don't. Nothing can stand in the way of God's judgment. Not prestige, not arrogance, not defenses, not wealth, not allies, not wisdom, and not military might. Nothing can stand in the way of God's judgment. We are in serious trouble here. Real and eternal trouble. Just as Edom was judged, so will we, both us individually and our nation, Every nation, every person stands guilty. And we need someone, something to help us if we don't want to be destroyed. We need something that can stand in the way of God's judgment. And we're in luck because a deliverance, a way of escape is promised here in the next verse. It says this, but there will be a deliverance on Mount Zion and it will be holy. 
So there's, there's, there's a bit of deliverance promised. Now, interestingly enough, this deliverance is not promised to Edom, it's promised to Judah, another group of people, some of God's chosen people, who faced their own day of the Lord, faced their own judgment. But God says a deliverance is coming. And this is where the book does something interesting. Now, based on my interpretation, it seems the book splits at this verse. I've got a handy chart, I think, on the next verse that's, or next slide that's going to kind of walk through this. It splits, and we begin talking about two different kinds of deliverances. So, verse 17 says that God's deliverance is coming on Mount Zion. Well, it seems that there's, uh, in the next few verses, verses 17 to 21, a specific description of a specific deliverance to a specific group of people, the people of Judah. But then also, verse 21 hints at a grander deliverance, a deliverance for all people for all time. So, let's look at this top one first. Let's look at this specific thing. We'll finish the book out. We'll read through these verses and see the specific deliverance that's given to the people of Judah. So, we'll start reading the rest of verse 17 here. It says this, the house of Jacob will dispossess those who dispossess them. Then the house of Jacob will be a blazing fire, and the house of Joseph a burning flame. But the house of Esau will be stubble, because uh, Jacob will set them on fire and consume Edom. Therefore, no survivor will remain of the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Real quick, I want to clarify something here, because this confused me the first time I read it. It talks about uh, Jacob being a fire and Joseph being a flame. Um, and then it talks about Esau being stubble. When I think of stubble, I think of, you know, when I haven't shaved in a couple of days, although I haven't shaved in a long time. I have a beard now. Uh, but, you know, you get short little hair. When the word stubble is used here, the people would be thinking about uh, it agriculturally, like a straw or wheat stubble. Basically, if you harvest something, we all live in Ohio, so we've seen cornfields, I would presume. You know when the combines come in and they harvest the corn, but there's still a little bit of corn stalks left near the ground? That's corn stubble. So here I have a picture kind of depict, depicting this, something that uh, ancient cultures would do and that we still do today in some parts of the world is after the harvest, you would set that stubble on fire. And so this is the, the kind of the picture that uh, Obadiah is drawing, that Jacob, the nation of Jacob, the nation of Israel, is going to be a great blazing fire. Joseph, who uh, is one of the sons of Jacob and one of the actually kind of two of the tribes, he gets a double portion, of uh, the nation of Israel will be a smaller yet still big fire, and they're going to consume Edom, just like setting a field of straw stubble on firewood. So, that's, that's the picture that, that's being painted here. Now, let's go back to the passage. People from the Negev will possess the hill country of Esau. Those from the Judean foothills will possess the land of the Philistines. They will possess the territories of Ephraim and Samaria, while Benjamin will possess Gilead. The exiles of the Israelites who are in Halah and who are among the Canaanites as far as Zarephath, as well as the exiles of Jerusalem in Sepharad, will possess the cities of the Negev. Saviors will ascend Mount Zion to rule over the hill country of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. So, in this passage, we see that Israel is going to get its territory back thanks to God and some saviors. Who are these saviors, though, in verse 21? This is a question I had as I was first looking over this passage. Well, I have a list of a few people who would certainly have been praised as saviors. The first is uh, Zerubbabel and Joshua. So, after the uh, Judeans are pulled out of their country, their, their temple is destroyed, they're brought into Babylon, they spend a long time in exile. 
And then eventually, the Babylonian Empire is conquered by the Persian Empire. The Persian Empire likes the Judeans a little bit better, and they let them go back. Zerubbabel and Joshua, they're part of this first group that goes back, and they lead this uh, rebuilding and rededication of the temple. They would have certainly been praised as saviors. Then there's Ezra, who led another wave of exiles back to Judea from Babylon, and he sought to restore true worship back here in the country of Judea. And then, after that, you have Nehemiah, who, uh, after they were rebuilding the temple and, and the Judeans were, were coming back, there uh, were people around them did not like that and started to threaten them. So, Nehemiah came back and he built the walls around Jerusalem, keeping them safe, literally saving them from people outside. Next is Judah, or Judas Maccabeus, uh, who began a revolt to overthrow the Greeks who were ruling Judea at the time, and then he cleansed the temple because the Greeks had placed these pagan idols in the temple and used it as a, as a, a multi-purpose worship site. Uh, so, Judas Maccabeus, he kicks them out of the temple, and they find some oil, they light this menorah, and it lasts for way longer than it should have, which is why we celebrate, or why Hebrews celebrate Hanukkah today. We're actually in the middle of Hanukkah right now. Um, and he, doing that, kind of starts the beginning of this independence movement in Judah. And then that is followed up by the next and last Savior, a guy by the name of Simon Thassi, who kicked the Greeks completely out of Jerusalem and the surrounding area and established an independent Judah. This is the first time they'd been independent in over 500 years. And then the following kings in his dynasty, the Hasmonean kings, uh, they created and maintained and made this independent nation even bigger. So here we have some saviors who brought this deliverance that's promised to Judah here in these last few verses. They directly brought this deliverance. And they made this kingdom of uh, restored Judah God's kingdom. They restored worship there. They restored the temple. And now it's a, a, a kingdom dedicated to God. Now, I have a map here that shows this independent kingdom. Now, it's got different colors on it. Everything that's colored was part of the kingdom at some point. The different colors represent different acquisitions under different kings. Uh, but everything that's colored in was part of this kingdom at its largest. So, Let's go through, again, once again, we'll go through all of the specific predictions made by Obadiah, and I'll show you how they came true. So, first is this. In verse 18, we're told that Jacob will consume Edom. So, if you look at the area I have circled, this is where the Idumeans were. Again, we know who Idumea was. That's the new name of, of Edom. It's completely consumed by the nation of Judah. In fact, it's not just consumed physically. They don't just come in and conquer them. They actually force them to convert to Judaism. And over time, the Idumean people within the Judean, Empire, or Judean kingdom become so blended that they actually kind of lose a bit of their sense of identity and become part of the, the Jewish group of people. Next, later in that verse, we see that we're told that no survivor will remain from the house of Esau. This happened, but not in the way that we might think. Again, the language here uh, is hyperbolic and talking about like individual destruction of every person. That's what we might immediately think. But in reality, it was more this. They lost their cultural identity. There's no group today that claims to be the Edomites. You won't find an Edomite anywhere on earth. It's not to say that there's no one who has some kind of direct descent from Esau. There probably is someone who's descended from Esau, probably a good number of them somewhere in the Middle East. But their, their cultural identity has been so scattered as they 
blended with the Judeans and blended with the surrounding cultures that they lost any sense of self. They lost their homeland. They lost their wealth. They lost their heritage. They're completely gone as a people. They don't exist anymore. Next, we see that people from the Negev will possess the hill country of Esau. So, Negev, it's a region south of Israel. It's a desert. The word Negev literally means dry land, but Negev was often used by the people to just talk about south, because everything south of Judah was just the desert. So, they'd just be like, yeah, and then Negev, you know, people from down south. So, people from the south will possess the hill country of Esau. Now, if you look where the uh, uh, Edomites came from, down where those hills are, where the Edomites were before, there's a uh, name there, it says the Nabataeans. This is one of the largest groups of those Arab uh, nomads who came and started to displace the people of Edom. These people literally came from the south and kicked the people out of their mountains. So, the people of the south now rule over the hill country of Esau. And it's interesting that Obadiah would predict this random southern people would rule over Esau. If I were writing a book about how uh, we're going to get back at those mean Edomites, I'd be like, we're going to rule over the hill country of Esau. But no, he, he says that this other random group, this people from the south, are going to rule over it. And it did. Four, we see that people from the Judean foothills will possess the land of the Philistines. So, I have that highlighted on the map. Uh, so, that's the red circle. That's the land of the Philistines. You can see that's possessed by Judeans. And then it says that they will also possess the territories of Ephraim and Samaria, which are highlighted with that blue circle up there, completely possessed by more Judeans, just as Obadiah said it would be. And then five, we see Benjamin, this is a, a tribe of Israel, will possess Gilead. And you can see both the city of Gilead and the region of Gilead are possessed by the Judean kingdom. And finally, six, the Jewish exiles will return and live in the cities of the Negev, again, the south. And uh, when Obadiah says south, he's talking about south of Jerusalem. So, it's likely when he says the cities of the south, he's talking to all the collected cities that are south of Jerusalem, which you can see multiple cities south of Jerusalem are possessed by the Judean kingdom. So, again, I point all these things out to bolster our confidence in the truth of Scripture. The things that Obadiah predicted came true, and came true specifically in the way that he predicted they would come true, all centuries after he wrote this book. <clears throat> but I also point this out to show that the salvation or deliverance of each of these saviors was temporary. They, they lost what bit of deliverance they had. You see, this kingdom lost its independence shortly, uh, about 70 years before Jesus was born, when the Romans came in and said, hey, it's a nice kingdom you have there. It's ours now. And then later in 70 AD, uh, after being ruled by the Romans for a while, the uh, Jews had had enough of it. They started a revolt. The Romans don't take kindly to revolts. They came down, destroyed the temple completely, laid waste to Jerusalem, and scattered the people all across the Roman Empire. All that salvation they had was lost. We see that 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 the salvation those saviors brought was temporary. They needed an eternal deliverance. So, let's look at verse 21 again. Saviors will ascend Mount Zion to rule over the hill country of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. That word for saviors in Hebrew is uh, Moshaim, which is the plural word of the Hebrew word for Messiah, Mahashiach. Uh, and there's one ultimate Messiah, one ultimate Savior, Jesus, the Son of God. 
And he did ascend Mount Zion. Mount Zion's this big mountain in Jerusalem. Uh, and he was in Jerusalem uh, accused of crimes he did not commit, then taken out of Jerusalem and killed on another mountain, Golgotha, right near Mount Zion, where Jesus delivered us from our sin. We see this in Mark 14. This, this language, again, with the cup of God's wrath is, is, is referenced in Mark 14. It says, uh, and Jesus said, oh, I do have it down here, uh, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup, the cup of God's wrath, away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Jesus didn't want to take this. He didn't want to take this judgment, didn't want to suffer, didn't want to suffer through God's wrath, but he accepted it and paid the penalty that we owe, the judgment that we deserve for our evil was faced by Christ in our place. But he rose from the dead, and in doing so, promised that we would also rise after our deaths. And he invites us into a new kingdom, a kingdom of the Lord's. We see that in First Peter, we're talking about being brought into a holy nation, a nation that will not face God's judgment. And unlike the work of the saviors I discussed above, the deliverance of Jesus is eternal, which completes my little chart up here. And we see this promised in Revelation chapter 11, where it says this, there will be loud voice, or there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He will reign forever and ever. God's kingdom is eternal, and it is perfect. How we, just how we learned the evil that Edom did, and it became an example of the, Edom that we, the evil that we do and, and our deserving of judgment, the inverse is also true. God's kingdom is a kingdom where people don't take advantage of each other, where people don't steal from one another, where people don't gloat and mock over one another, where people don't stand off on the sidelines when others need help but get in and get dirty with each other and help. This is the kingdom that we're promised. This is the kingdom to which we belong to as citizens if we believe in Christ. That's what I want to encourage you to do today is to remember where our citizenship is. Like Obadiah said, the day of the Lord is coming against all nations, even a nation like ours. And don't get me wrong, I, I really think the United States is a great nation. But even a nation like ours, which has had a pretty good history, has done great evil in its time and will continue to do great evil so long as it exists. And it is going to face a judgment. So let's join God's holy kingdom, be citizens of this holy nation that will not face God's judgment, and let's live like citizens of that kingdom. Let's live to love and to care for one another, to do what is right, to do what is good, to do what God has written in His Word for us. Connor, you can come back up as I pray, and uh, we'll go into a time of worship. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thankful. We are thankful that Your Word is true, that what You say does happen, that it does come to pass. And as much as it is scary to see the judgment that we deserve and know that it will come, it is so good and reassuring and so hope-bringing to know that the deliverance that You promise through Your Son Jesus is just as certain to come, is just as true. And that that deliverance comes from a perfect Savior. That deliverance comes and it is eternal. 
God, that we don't have to fear uh, that any nation would come and, and take that deliverance from us, that we could lose this, that we could lose Your love, lose our salvation, that You would uh, let us be harmed by any outside force. Instead, God, we know that what You have promised us is true, and that so long as we believe and persevere, we will see You and be raised from the dead and belong fully and wholly to Your holy nation. God, You are so good. We pray this all in Your Son's name. Amen.